0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, September seventeenth, 2007. I'm Caleb Brown. On this Constitution Day, I speak with Cato Institute Vice President for Legal Affairs Roger Pilon about the newest edition of the Cato Supreme Court Review after this, the first full year of the Roberts Court. There weren't really any surprises. In fact, uh, it's striking about this court that it is pretty predictable The early assessments of this first full term of the Roberts Court pointed to how the conservatives really carried the day, and in a certain level, that's true. Now, early on in his confirmation hearings and shortly thereafter, Chief Judge Roberts spoke about his wish to have the court speak with one voice and more narrowly than it had in the recent past. That, unfortunately, went by the way, There were fewer uh, unanimous opinions in this court than in a decade. About one quarter of the cases were decided unanimously. And more 5-4 decisions than in a decade, about a third of the cases. Interestingly, in those 5-4 decisions, Justice Kennedy was on the winning side in every one of the 19 cases that were ideological in the sense that The conservatives were all on one side, the liberals were all on the other side. In fact, Justice Kennedy was on the winning side in all but two of the court's total number of decisions this term. But looking at it from an ideological point of view once again, it's striking that of the 19 ideological cases, the 13 that went for the conservatives is countered by the six that went for the Liberals. But four of those six cases were Texas death penalty cases. So the numbers for the Liberals were even worse than uh, the actual numbers would indicate. But when you look at the court in this ideological way, conservative versus liberal, you really don't see the full picture because, as the conservatives say, there were no doctrinal changes of any significance. Abortion is still legal. Campaign finance regulations are still very much in place. And so one wants to look at some of the deeper issues because the conservative agenda over the past 30 years that um, they have complained about the court was that it was too political. What we want to ask, therefore, is whether the Roberts court is political in the sense in which the Warren and Berger courts were political, or is it moving more toward the application of the rule of law? My sense is that the court is moving more in the direction of applying the rule of law than acting politically, but it's a mixed picture still, and it probably will be for some time to come, because after all, we do have the four liberals on the court who are inclined more toward, if I may say so, reaching decisions on a political basis, and Justice Kennedy in the middle who can go either way depending upon what the issues are before the court. How have the terms activism and restraint changed over the course of the Supreme Court's history? Well that's an interesting history in itself because so many people look at the court today with reference to whether it is an activist court or a restrained court and the complaint of the conservatives over more than a quarter of a century is that the Warren and Burger courts and to some extent the Rehnquist court did behave as an activist court but what they often meant by that was that they did not defer to the political branches to the congress on one hand and the states on the other hand and that comes from the approach that Robert Bork took in his book Tempting of America when he said that our first principle is that in, quote, wide areas, majorities are entitled to rule simply because there are majorities, whereas our second principle is that there are nonetheless some areas in which minorities are entitled to be free from majority rule, some areas in which majorities may not rule as against minorities. Well, that sort of turns Madison on his head, The Constitution really stands for the idea that in wide areas, individuals are entitled to be free because they're born free. Nevertheless, in some areas, majorities are entitled to rule because we've authorized them to rule. That is the Constitution of limited government. Now, we've strayed from that to a great deal, to be sure, and that's why the issue of restraint and activism is so confused a pair of terms toward looking at the court at this point in time. Nevertheless, if you rethink these terms with reference to the idea of a restrained court is a court that is applying the law, whether it means it's doing so actively or by deference to the political branches where deference is due, then you can understand judicial activism as the idea that the court is doing something other than applying the law, it's making the law. And when you look at the term, as I said a moment ago, It is a mixed picture. For example, when you look at the campaign uh, finance cases, for example, here the court got it right. Indeed, in the essay in the Supreme Court Review by Professor Lillian Bevere of the University of Virginia, she brings out how it is that the Roberts Court has revived the First Amendment as it applies to the campaign finance area. Not completely, to be sure. Far from it. But at least it is back in play in that uh, area of the law. When you look at the affirmative action cases, here too you see the court got it right by restoring the Equal Protection Clause to its proper place, at least as applied in these cases. Still, the University of Michigan affirmative action decisions are good law, even though the application of the Equal Protection Clause to the secondary schools at issue in the cases before the court this term came to a different result. When you look at this case of Wilkie v. Robbins, however, we have a very different picture. This was a very complex case, complex facts, complex law. And our essay in this volume of the Cato Supreme Court Review, written by Professor Larry Tribe, of the Harvard Law School. He argued it before the Supreme Court. It's an outstanding essay that brings out how it is that the court got it very wrong. The case involved a challenge to actions by the Bureau of Land Management against a rancher in Wyoming who took title to property without any easement to that property that previous to that the Bureau of Land Management had secured from the prior owner, but had neglected to record. As a result, he took title free and clear. They sought to regain the title from him by demanding that he give it to them. He refused. He said, you can pay me for that easement, but I'm not going to give it to you free they proceeded to engage in a series of egregious illegal acts against him. And so he brought an action under what is called the Bivens Doctrine, which involves a plea for damages for all the actions of the BLM agents that were illegal and that resulted in driving him out of business. The court, Justice Souter writing for the court, decided otherwise, and essentially eviscerated Bivens' remedies from the Constitution. And this is what the essay by Professor Tribe addresses in great detail concerning a case that was extraordinarily complex, both on its facts and its law. It is an extremely important essay in this year's Cato Supreme Court Review, and we're very pleased to have Professor Tribe contributing to it this year. Roger Pilon is the Cato Institute's Vice President for Legal Affairs. The Cato Supreme Court Review is available at our website for purchase at Cato.org.